Um, folks, it's a good morning to you if I've not met you. Good morning to you if you've just come back to in-person worship. Um, reminder, we got a few spots again for you with regards uh, alternative places where you can listen to the live stream if your children require that or you, or you require that. And next two Sundays, I want to give you a picture of what we're intending to do. Uh, over the next two weeks, we are going to take a sort of a two-week mini-series. Pastor Bill's going to preach next week, and I'm going to preach in two weeks. And it's going to be interesting. And I'll say this, it's not caused by anything particular in anything among us necessarily. But we feel the enemy's push against God's church and how we do and don't know how to deal with conflict. So we're going to do a mini-series next week on when you have sinned against someone or they have sinned against you. What does Jesus, what do the scriptures teach to us about how to navigate that biblically, obediently, beautifully? Then the next week, I'm going to preach not about when someone has sinned against you, but when we live in a world of sin that distresses us. And no one has offended us or come after us that requires necessarily me to even know who to go to. How do we navigate that as Christians in a world that is broken by sin? So those are going to be the next two Sundays. I ask you to pray for that. Um, I want to give an update on our brother Wit uh, Lamons. For those of you that haven't checked your email, this will come as a big surprise to you. Um, last Sunday, Wit and I stood after the service and chatted for a good while. This morning, I went to go pray with Lydia, his wife, and Wit's father and mother. Friday evening, Whit Lamons was riding his bicycle at Tannery Knobs Bicycle Park right here, and he crashed pretty drastically, and he suffered multiple fractured vertebrae in his neck and uh, major ligament damage in his neck and uh, did not suffer any immediate paralysis, but it's not good. And so he is on his way to Vanderbilt this morning, um, and that's a good thing for the sake of neurologists and surgeons and such. Um, but I want to just give an update to you all. He is not in pain right now. Thanks be to God. He is completely lucid, and other than his original concussion, he's been aware the whole time. Um, his father, uh, through tears this morning, said he's actually doing great. Um, yesterday, when I was able to speak with him, didn't think, I didn't think he'd be able to talk. I didn't know what was going on. Um, is all he did is he reminded me all the different names that Jesus goes by in the Bible. But it's scary. So I want to just ask for you to be praying for their family. A lot of you have reached out to Pastor Bill or myself about how can we help. And I want to be a little prophetic and let me speak boldly as a pastor. Prayer is help and it is sufficient to Jesus the healer. Secondarily, we need when a family goes through a trial to think long view of things as a local body, not just short view. I love the intensity that I've received a lot of communication from many of you. How can I help? How can I help? We will help. We will help. But we need to also anticipate what help looks like days from now, weeks from now, months from now, and God only knows, okay? So uh, just if Lydia, if you're listening, we love you. We're going to pray for them. I'm going to preach another psalm of lament this morning. And I, I, in my truck at a stoplight on the way in this morning, I just grabbed a pen and wrote this. I feel we're getting drilled right now. We're getting drilled as a local church. We're getting drilled in our culture. We're getting drilled with physical health. We're getting drilled among relations. We are getting drilled. And we have words from God's word that give us cries that we get to offer up to the God who sovereignly intends everything. And nothing is outside of his care. Nothing is outside of his care. And so I'm going to ask if you pray with me this morning. But again, there are words for us this morning in our time of need. And we're going to look at them together. Let me pray. 
Father, would you hear this cry for help that we're going to usher up from the Word of God this morning? We lift up our sister Lydia, little Jesse, and Caleb. We lift up the family and friends who are, are, are just in patient mode and waiting and wrestling. We lift up our brother Wit, and we thank you that he's not in physical pain right now, but we don't know whether there's surgery or what will come next for him. We pray for discernment for doctors. We pray for stability in the transport of him to Vanderbilt. And we ask that as your church, we would be prepared to serve in ways that are supernatural. And we would trust in you unwaveringly, especially when we suffer. Help us, I pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me do this real quick. My old man eyes. Last week we preached from Psalm 77. And I would like to just say a few things about that before we move into this week. Uh, just please hear this. I know that I did not say all that could be or should be said about things going on in our culture. I did not exhaustively list sins that are heinous in our culture that we must lament. Um, and I'm not, I started to list them here, but I'm not even going to do that because the list doesn't end under the sun. Um, I didn't discuss the semantics of our culture that's crying out in lament. I didn't compare the semantics of, of, of what's being declared between, from that or organizations and movements that are political in nature. That are, I didn't talk about any of that. What I did from Psalm 77, I hope you felt, is call our church to biblical lament that is honest that considers our neighbor and that moves us by the word and the spirit to the single place of definitive rescue for the people of God. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what I tried to do last week. And I was reading in Psalm 71 this week, and please let me just share with you what was very comforting and a good reminder to me. In Psalm 71, the psalmist says this, my mouth will tell of God's righteous acts of his deeds of salvation all day long. And then the psalmist says this, I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone, period. That's a great word to a preacher, to a teacher. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone, period. And that's what we're called to do this morning as we bask in the promises of God for the people of God. We rest in his justice and righteousness. We, we lean into his mercy as we cry out to him. But this morning, I just want you to know, we're going to turn to a different psalm, and it's the same goal. That we will declare his righteousness, his alone, and we will rest in it. So we turn to Psalm 143, and it's just another psalm, one with lament, and it's one that connects to us in deep distress. It's a psalm of King David, the anointed king of God's people. He's in pain. He feels attacked. He begs to God for quick resolution. I can't wait any longer. My spirit faints. Deliver me now is what he cries out. And I want to help us get into this psalm before I even read it. We've already sung it, but before I read it, I was reading the very large multi-volume work by Charles Spurgeon uh, called The Treasury of David. It's all of his psalms. And in a section on Psalm 143, it says, hints to preachers. So I cheated and I went to that part of the chapter first. And he said this. He said, consider the lengths 
God may sometimes permit the enemy to go in our lives. The deep depression of a spirit, God may even permit his saints to experience. Oh, the good things he's provided for our meditation when at our worst. When at the bottom. Spurgeon then adds this in his hints to preachers. He says, preacher, this whole psalm is a good text for a lecture on the life of Job. A lecture on the life of suffering. A lecture on reason for myriad laments. Um, A a lecture about what I'll call, I made up a word this week, providentials. Providence guiding trials. A life of lament. This is a great lecture, Psalm 143. But then I got thinking, and I really appreciate Spurgeon's point, but Spurgeon, you can look a lot closer to home than your servant, God's servant Job, for an example of this kind of suffering. Did you know Charles Spurgeon himself was a man deeply broken by suffering? For those of you that have studied the history of the church, Spurgeon was known as the prince of preachers, but he was also equally known for the deep afflictions he experienced throughout his life. Spurgeon was debilitated very, very frequently with what he wrote was causeless depression. He once said in a sermon titled, The Christian's Heaviness and Rejoicing, he said this, he said, my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child and then not know what I was weeping for. Causeless depression plagued him. Then he shared with others the shame that he felt, that he was so vulnerable to that kind of despondency. On top of that, Spurgeon had regular bouts with anxiety. The deacons in his church knew that no one was to interrupt Charles Spurgeon 10 minutes before he would preach. He would be alone. He would be physically sick. Even though Spurgeon was such a great communicator, halls across Europe would be filled of people that came to hear him preach. Add to that, physically he suffered gout, frequently in tremendous pain. In ministry, he suffered scorn. So I'd like to add to the treasury of David what Spurgeon doesn't say. Spurgeon says it would make a great lecture on the life of Job. I think the truth is it made a great prayer for Spurgeon himself. Like it would have been a great prayer for Job had he had the words. Like it was a great prayer for David. Like it is a great prayer for you and for me. So Psalm 143 this morning, this should feel anything but like a lecture. And it should feel like God is giving us words with which to cry out. So I don't know all that you feel or maybe that you feel you can no longer feel. I've said that over the recent weeks out of respect. I don't know if you can name the cause that brings pain to you or you suffer causeless pain. I don't know if you are consumed by the afflictions of our world or right now you're actually despondent toward the afflictions of our world because the pain you're going through is so real. I don't know what it may be, but I know this. If you are in Christ, then the words of Psalm 143 are a plea that God is giving to us that finds its landing point on the righteousness of God, his alone for his people. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me and let's, let's declare this. I'll read it if you'll hear, but would our hearts declare it together? A Psalm of David. 
Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He's crushed my life to the ground. He's made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you've done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, will you cut off my enemies and will you destroy all the adversaries of my soul? For I am your servant. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So I'd ask you to notice with me that the psalm kind of begins and ends in similar ways. So that gives us a trajectory. We understand where the psalmist starts and concludes. Notice it starts with a servant crying out with pleas to God, and it ends with a servant making a declaration that is rooted in God's preservation. So you have kind of from plea to preservation. You got repeat of terms, God's righteousness, his steadfast love, both at the beginning and the end. You have his self-identity as a servant at the beginning and the end. You have pleas at the beginning, but you have this real declaration as the final, final verses of the words of the psalm. I am your servant. What goes on in between is the critical things we'll observe this morning. So notice with me that the interplay between verse 1 and 2 is super duper important. I plead for you to hear my cry, says the psalmist, not because of how I cry, not because I have the right words with which to cry. We saw last week, Psalm 77, I may have no words. Not because of what just happened to me. So if I cry to God, he knows how bad it is. Not for any of those reasons does he cry to God and know that God will answer. He says, I plea to you to respond by your faithfulness, by your righteousness. It's as though as soon as David gives his plea, he considers who God is, faithful and righteous, and that prompts him immediately to say, time out. I want you to answer me in your righteousness and in your character, but, but don't judge me in my unrighteousness. I know my character. You see that between verses 1 and 2. Commentaries help see here that perhaps David is crying out to God, and he's saying, God, listen, I'm not guilty for what they're accusing me that I've done. I have not any reason to sustain this sort of suffering, so vindicate me, vindicate me. I've not done what they're saying, but please do not put my life on trial. Because if you put my life on trial, God, I couldn't stand. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. He says that David entreats for audience at the mercy seat but he has no wish to appear before the judgment seat. Listen, these two verses, we could stop here. They cry out for the solution of the gospel, don't they? 
See, because if God were to answer us in his righteousness, if he doesn't, by way of grace and mercy, cover our unrighteousness with the righteousness of Jesus, we have no leg to stand on for which God would receive us. His mercy is not just that he sets aside our sin and says, I'm a really nice God and I'll help you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, you are unrighteous, I am righteous, and the gap is too great. Therefore, in my mercy, I'll cover your unrighteousness so when you cry out to me, I have made it so that you have a hearing with me. The gospel is just like with flashing arrows pointed to in verse 1 and 2. Then I want you to see with me that as the servant cries out in prayer, we'll look at verses 3 to 10 for the most of our time together this morning. There's sort of a pathway to this psalm of lament. Where does he go in his prayer? Well, the first thing he does, I'll just say it like this. I'm summarizing three and four by the words unrest. The psalmist is in unrest. He says, the enemies pursued my life. I feel crushed. I feel made to sit in darkness and I am appalled. I'm completely not at rest. We know this is a psalm of David. So I want you to think with me about the servant David. Think with me how throughout his life, how unstable he was because of many scenarios. For example, what kind of unrest might David be feeling? Well, maybe he's acknowledging that he's fleeing Saul here. As early in his public ministry, he's been anointed by Samuel to be the coming king, but he's not yet been installed by God and Saul still reigns. Therefore, David actually literally sat in caves hiding. David literally had to duck from spears being thrown by a crazy madman at his head. David was a man who felt the enemy pursued his life. So maybe this is about his time fleeing Saul. But if you fast forward to the book of 2 Samuel, maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's later in his life and David's thinking about his other time of fleeing. It wasn't because of Saul, the king before him. It was his son Absalom who sought to take and usurp his father's throne and did so grossly with murder and sexual infidelity and all sorts of shameful acts. And David ends up again in a cave hiding from his own son. That makes a lot of sense to me because the way that Absalom was, the words where the psalmist says, my heart is appalled. I'm appalled at all that goes on. Maybe it was Saul, maybe it was Absalom, maybe it was the foreign kings that attacked him. Maybe it's none of that. Maybe the enemy David's talking about is his own sin. The enemy within. David was an adulterous murderer. He'd been found out. The prophet Nathan came to him and said, you're going to have a consequence that sticks with your home for generations. So maybe that's the enemy David is appalled about. But he starts by telling us, my soul is not at rest. Do you know that? That feeling of unrest. My heart within me is appalled. Have you, could you pray that? Have you prayed that prayer? My spirit in, inside me faints. I feel pursued by the enemy, leaving me crushed. Yet the Bible says I'm perplexed, but not crushed, but I feel crushed. In my heart, I know that I'm guilty of sin. In my relationships, I see the damage. In my city, my country, my culture, everything's a mess. Do you feel unrest? Here's some words to pray. David continues in verse 5. He says something about a meditation. He talks about my meditation. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you've done. I meditate on the work of your hands. It's very general compared to the previous psalm, Psalm 77 last week, where the work that David was talking about was the Exodus, right? It was very clearly laid out. Here, it's just, God, I'm thinking about your work. I think about what your hands have done. 
Well, when he says the work of your hands, that is kind of code language for the Exodus, just to be honest with you. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, God told Moses, he said, I'm the Lord. I'll bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. So throughout God's people's history, when you use the word of God's hand, it is often referring back to that glorious event of rescue from slavery. I think of later in the days of Samuel, though, when the ark of God was captured by the Philistines. And we are told the story what happens when the Philistines erected the ark of God in the temple of their false god, the idol Dagon. How the next morning the idol had fallen over and they propped it back up. And the next morning they went and found it and the hands and the head of the idol had been broken off. So you have this demanicated idol. There's no hands on it. And all through 1 Samuel chapter 5, the way that Samuel writes it for us is the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines and the hand of the Lord was preserving his own and the hand of the Lord, all while you have this picture of this handless idol that was knocked over. So this is very, very real language for the psalmist to use to say God's hand is in everything. At the end of his life, when King David is gonna be disciplined by God for taking a census, and, and having hubris and pride for how great of a king he was of all these people he led, the prophet came to him and gave him three options in God's discipline. He said there can either be famine for three years, you can have pestilence for three days, or you can have, I think it's three months of attack by the enemy. And David said, I'd rather fall into the hands of God than to the hands of men. And pestilence struck the people of God for three days. Because even God's justice at his hand is better than the the hands of men who are finicky and fickle and wicked. So a hand of God may be describing parts of David's life, maybe describing the people of God, but I want you to think with me about how the Bible gives us reason to not just think about the covenant promises of God, but even our own life. Think of David's life where he just could say the, the hand of God orchestrated it. God, you protected me when I was battling a lion as a shepherd boy. God, I remember coming in from the field, and it was really weird. This Samuel guy was standing in the living room, and all my brothers were in a line, and it was super awkward, and I walked in, and he looked at me and said, you are the man God's chosen. I didn't do anything. I just came in from the field. I remember the hand of God that day. And then I remember going to take lunch to my brothers as they were fighting Goliath of Gath, and, and nobody had courage to believe in God's promises. And so I just did what came to me. I just took care of it. But I didn't do anything. It was your battle to win, God, but I remember your hand on that day. So when we see the, the psalmist say it like this, I want us to think about our lives. Do you know very well the promises in Scripture of God's hand holding his people? John chapter 6, John chapter 10, that Jesus says, no one will snatch God's people that he's given me out of my hand. Just broad promises. But how about in your own life? Have you seen the hand of God orchestrate things for your good? I cried in the living room this morning. I didn't cry, but I saw family members cry. Telling me the hand of God they're seeing in God's servant wit. Looking at a father who's saying, Jim, I don't know you very well. Thanks for coming by, but let me tell you the way we've seen God's hand already. You and I need in our prayer life to be able not just to try to determine always the way his hand's holding us in the moment, but we can do that when we look back over the history of redemption and we see that God has made promises that he will hold his people and his hand guides all providence. Where does David go next? 
He said, yes, I believe your hand's holding me, but I am in desperation. In my desperation, I need immediate help. So that's the third thing. He goes into a realm of my desperation. I need your answer and I need it now, is what David says. Look at the interplay between verse 5 and 6. God, I consider the work of your hands, but my hands are stretched out to you. Psalm 77, the psalmist says, I'm not, I'm exhausted. I can't keep my eyes open, but my hands don't ever fall because I'm crying out to you day and night, day and night. That's what we have here. Answer me quickly, God. My spirit fails. And then there's three images about sort of the immediate need, even though we don't know what it is. He says, I'm like a thirsty soul that's like a parched land. My soul feels like a dust bowl. I thought about this last night as we were eating, grilling out, and my dog wanted to eat it. And I was like, what's going on with his face? He's just, he just, he's, there's no water for him. There's no food for him, but he just, he's parched and he just wants to eat what we eat. And you could just see the contortion on his face of just dehydration and hunger all at once. He's a fat dog. He's fine. But think of the, the need when you feel so parched. Or the next image to me is one of a father hiding his face from a child. Hide not your face from me. Or, or the third image is of, of going down to the grave where there's no hope anymore. I'm almost done, says the psalmist. I'm thirsty. I'm like a child that can't see a parent's face. And I'm about in the grave. By the way, those three descriptions are perfect descriptions of Jesus on the cross. He actually said, I'm thirsty. He actually says, Father, why have you forsaken or hidden your face from me? And he actually went dead in the grave for our sin. So David lists his desperation. Then the biggest part of our sermon, which is really the application part, is in verses 8 through 10. David asks for four things. Four things he knows he needs to ask for. This is super important. He, David knew he needed to ask these things because he's been given promise before his time of suffering that God would give these things. If you are in Christ, disciple, Christian, when you are in a trial, you know what to ask for by the Spirit of God inside of you, by the imperishable seed he's planted in you. I know what to ask for. And I think they're very basically laid out here, and I want to encourage you to join me in them. But you think of David being told in 2 Samuel that God's going to never let his steadfast love pass from his, his king's house, ever. So what's the first thing that the king asked for here when he says, I have a need? Verse 8, I need your steadfast love. I need to hear your gospel daily. In the morning, when I wake, I need to hear that I'm a forgiven sinner, and you are faithful. That's what I need. Above all things, I need to know your steadfast love, for in you I trust. I need to know that the grace of Jesus that covers my sin is sufficient to hold me forever. I need to know that the unrest out there is not a problem to the people of God if God's sustaining all things. I need to know that there's no length or depth I could go to in my sin to separate me from the love of Christ. There's no sin that's so small and casual it didn't cost the blood of Christ. There's no sin so great that I can't be washed from it by the blood of Christ. In the morning, I need to know your steadfast love. The gospel is such a glorious story from death to life, from blind to sight. I need to know in the morning that you're a God who works miracles of rescue. That's the first thing he says. 
I need to know your righteousness that's been substituted for me. I'm unrighteous. I could never stand. I need to know your gospel daily. Second thing, I need a guide daily. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. This is different than knowing you're forgiven that God's love is steadfast. I know that there are many sitting in this room right now who've had great conversations with others sitting in this room right now saying, I don't know what to do. I need God to guide me in this complex decision or time of unrest. This morning, while Pastor Bill and I were on a text train with Lydia, and she she knows I'm going to share this, I was at this point in my review of sermon notes, and she texted and said, I'm perplexed. I want to go to Nashville to be with Wit at Vanderbilt. But with a newborn and Jesse and COVID-19, I feel like I'm having to choose between my husband and my sons. And I'm looking at this verse, make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. People of God, you need to be reminded, and so do I, when we don't know what to do by by means of prayer and the Holy Spirit and the Scripture's guidance and, and care of one another, beg for God to be daily your guide. And the Scriptures tell us that we have His Spirit in us, which is far better than a cloud by day and a fire by night. But God's people have always said, I don't know where to go. Thirdly, verse 9, I need a guard daily. Deliver me from my enemies, Lord. I've fled to you for refuge. Lord, protect me. Protect me from Satan's wiles. We looked at that at 1 Peter chapter 5, this enemy that seeks to devour the sheep of God who have the power to resist him by the Spirit in us, but he seeks us nonetheless. I need protection from the enemy of my sin. Even the apostle Paul, who knew so well the rescue of God, he's the one who gives us words and says, I don't know why I do the things I do. I'm I'm attacked all the time. I wouldn't know what it is to covet if the law hadn't told me not to covet. Now I want to covet. I'm attacked all the time. My flesh is constantly attacking me. Fear of man, idolatry, anger, lust. Lord, protect me from the enemy of my sin. Lord, protect me from others, from foolishness, from taking on the posture of the world when I've not thought about the differentness of the posture of the world, from the gospel's promise of righteousness. Help me to know how to empathize. Help me know how to love. Help me know how to point people to Jesus, but I don't always know how to do it safely, and I can't protect myself. Fourthly, verse 10, I need to grow daily. Teach me your will, for you're my God. And then he beautifully says, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. The more mature we are, the more we grow. Though there's instability in the world, the more sure our footing is. Isn't that true? Saints who've gone before me, older mothers and fathers in the faith, I hope you realize the privilege of you ministering to younger individuals and families in this congregation to say, the Spirit of God will hold you. He is faithful. I've been down a path where I thought he wouldn't be. I've been down a path where I thought he wouldn't guard me. I've been down a path where I thought that the guilt of my sin would be greater than the promises of the gospel, but let me share with you that God will hold you, and then we start to grow. Teach me, mature me. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. I want to grow from one degree of glory to another. Day by day, moment by moment, our growth is slow. 
We're just jars of clay and the glory of God has been put inside of us. It's slow. But Paul says this, he says, we're not sufficient in ourselves, but we've been made competent. People of God, I hope it's your prayer that you say, God, I want to grow daily. I want to have a spirit that gives me stability in an unstable world. I want to work out my salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who's at work in me. I want to study your law, all of it. For all scriptures breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I want to grow. So, so this is where the psalmist culminates his prayer. Father, I'm crying out to you and I need immediate help, but what I know I really need is your gospel daily, you to be my guide daily, you to be my guard daily, and I want to grow daily. That's my need. Sometimes we need one of those more than others. Maybe you'd agree with that. Some days you wake up and you are just cowering in fear and you need to know that God hovers over you or in Christ and he's your refuge and you're protected. Or like our sister Lydia or like some of you who've had big decisions to make or trials where you don't know how circumstances are going to go, you need a guide. You've never been down this path. It wasn't part of the plan. But every day we need all of these. And I propose to you, maybe, I think, we need them in this order. I need to know I'm forgiven. I need to know he holds history and he'll guide me. I need to know that if he holds history and will guide me, that nothing will ever snatch me out of his hand. He'll guard me. And in the end, he grows his servants by the imperishable seed of his word put inside of us. So where does this all end? That's where we'll end this morning and take the Lord's Supper beautifully. It ends, verse 11 and 12, with a preserved servant. I am your servant. I picture the, the psalmist crying out like this in his prayer, but there's sort of a sense in which he just stands, kind of like we're going to stand and take the Lord's Supper with a confidence. I'm the servant of God. In a broken world, For your namesake, preserve me. In your righteousness, bring me out. In your steadfast love, protect me. Repeat of all the things we've heard. For I am your servant. And so my hope, brothers and sisters, this morning is this doesn't feel like a lecture. Because after I hear a lecture, I have to go study it. I got to memorize it in case I get tested. No, I think this is a prayer of lament for us. You don't need to go study it. You need to believe it. Use it that God would give you his gospel daily for your identity. He'd be your guide. He'd be your guard and you would grow and that that would be enough for us while we wait. I'm going to close by reading the very first words of Second Peter. I didn't plan to, but I'd like to just read this and then I'll pray. If I can find Peter. I think we're getting drilled. It's not going to stop. I don't think it's going to stop. But when what happened to our brother Witt happened, and some things are confidentially happening in your lives, some things are cultural, I think we're getting drilled. Remember our study in the book of Habakkuk? How that book ended? 
What if it doesn't get any better? What if the fig tree never produces fruit again? I'll praise you, God. I'll praise you. Hear these final words, or in his final letter, these words of Peter, and I think they encapsulate all of this, and then I'll pray. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sin. Let's pray. Father, would we believe that when we cry out to you, you have made us partakers in the divine nature in the sense that you've put Christ in us, our only hope. And whatever we traverse, would we find each morning when we awake that your steadfast love is sufficient, you've forgiven us of all of our sins, and you hold a future of the restoration of all things and the righteous restoration of your own. You're the just judge All things will be made right. Would we trust in that gospel? Between now and then, would we look to you as our guide when we don't know what to do? Between now and then, will we trust in you as our guard and that you're going to keep us as you keep an inheritance in heaven for us? And finally, would we trust that you're going to grow us and would we pour our lives into the lives of those in this church around us who need help in standing up in Seeing how you're growing them, would we navigate life not alone? We thank you for your word, for your church. Take us from plea to preservation this morning. For we are your servants. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.